The following audio is from New City Church Milledgeville. More information on New City Church Milledgeville is available at www.newcitymilledgeville.org. If you again, if you're just coming back, we have started a series in Genesis. So the way we've been handling this, uh, Genesis is a massive book, and so we are taking uh, several chapters in Genesis, preaching through that. Then we take a break and go into a different book, preach through that, and then we come back to Genesis. So we are on our second round in Genesis. We're preaching through Genesis 4 through 11, I believe. Yes, 4 through 11. And we've already had a couple sermons, or maybe just one. Was it two? No, just one. Uh, we already have one sermon in this. You can find that on our, uh, our uh, website, newcitymillersville.org. You can go there, you listen to last week's sermon. This is week number two in the series, uh, and again, we'll be covering uh, 4 through 11 throughout the entire series. This morning, we're going to cover a very large portion uh, of Scripture. Uh, we're going to run from Genesis chapter 4, verse 17, all the way to Genesis chapter 6, verse 8. So that is a massive uh, piece of text to try to cover in one sermon. But it really boils down to something very simple. God's faithfulness to those who love him and his relentless plan of redemption. That's, that's really what it boils down to. When you read all the way from Genesis 4.17 to Genesis 6.8, which we're going to do this morning because some of you may have never read it before, uh, that's what it boils down to. Our perfect Father is always faithful to those who love Him imperfectly. Okay, so that's our big idea this morning. Our perfect Father is always faithful, always faithful to those who love Him imperfectly. Deuteronomy seven nine says it like this: Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And that's exactly what we're going to see in our passage this morning. So as a recap from last week, in case you weren't with us, Adam and Eve gave birth to two sons. There were no doubt other children, but these are the two sons that were highlighted, probably the first two sons of Adam and Eve. As an act of worship, Cain and Abel brought sacrifices to God. Cain brought fruit and vegetables, but his heart wasn't in it. He gave out of duty, and he did not give his best. Abel brought the best of his flock, the very best sheep, the very best portions of his flock, because he loved God and wanted to please him. He acted in faith motivated by love. And Cain got angry. Cain got raging angry because God knew their hearts and he esteemed Abel and he showed no favor to Cain in his sacrifice. So Cain lured Abel into a field and killed him. The father confronted Cain, disciplined him, but also protected him. By sending him out of the known land and placing a mark on him that would warn others not to harm him. This morning, we pick up with a new beginning. And that is the beginning of Cain's line in exile and the birth of Seth, the line of hope that God 
had promised. So let's start in chapter 4, verse 17. We'll read the entire text together. Actually, you'll read it, and I'll read it, so we're not saying it at the same time. should be up on the screen if you didn't bring your Bibles with you. Verse 17, here we go. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erid, and Erid fathered Mahujel, and Mahujel fathered Meshuel, and Methushel fathered Lamech, and Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other was Zillah. Adah bore Jabal, who was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Namah. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after He fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. But Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech, different Lamech than Cain's Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. 
When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. And Noah was 500 years old. Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, everything, for I am sorry that I ever made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you are good and gracious to us, God, even as we as we open up your word this morning and we look at the text, Father, we, I am just reminded over and over and over again how gracious you are to us. And we don't even understand the tip of the iceberg of your grace. Father, I pray this morning as we, as we look at this, this large passage, Father, that you would impress on our hearts how great you are, how worthy of worship you are, Father, that, that you are faithful to those who love you. God, I pray that you would impress that on our hearts, God, that we would be drawn even more into your presence, God, that you would fan the flames of our affections for you so that everything that distracts us in this life and tempts us in this life, God, we would be drawn to you even more. Father, we would see you more valuable and more precious than anyone or anything, even ourselves. Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit would move among us and soften our hearts and open our eyes to who you are and what you're doing in the world. Father, we love you. We commit ourselves to you and pray, God, that you would have your way with us this morning. It's in Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. We're going to start off with the family of Cain. The family of Cain. Almost the entirety of this passage centers on two families, the family of Cain the family of Seth. But the passage isn't really about Cain or Seth. The story set up the backdrop to demonstrate two things for us. One is man's sinfulness, and two is God's faithfulness. And this has really been the theme since the garden, right? We've seen the same theme play out over and over in Genesis. Man's sinfulness, God's faithfulness. Adam and Eve sinned and plunged man into darkness, but God was faithful. He covered their shame and promised a redeemer. Cain sins and offers a half-hearted offering as worship, but God reminds him of the sin that was corrupting his heart so that he wouldn't give in to it. God was faithful to Cain. Cain sins by rising up and killing Abel and then lies about it. 
God doesn't exact death for Cain's sin and is faithful in protecting him as he is cast out into the wilderness. And then we pick up in verse 17. Cain continues to rebel. Remember the passage from last week when God disciplined Cain? Remember that passage? Cain, you have to leave here and you will be a wanderer and a fugitive for all of your days. You will travel, you will walk, you will never settle, you will always be a wanderer. You have to leave here. The ground will no longer yield to you its fruit. You will struggle for the rest of your days. So how does Cain respond to God's discipline? In a way that continues to reveal Cain's heart. Cain says, I'll do what I want to do. You don't tell me. Instead of remaining a wanderer and a fugitive, Cain builds a city in direct opposition to God's decree. But again, God shows him grace. And it's not just any city. It's a a thriving, bustling city. Agriculture, farming, ranching, the arts, metallurgy. It's a well-organized community that Cain had set up. God shows him grace by allowing the city to thrive. Cain has children who have children who have children, and soon the city is filled with people building and working and creating. And God shows him grace. Cain continues to rebel. And we can identify with this, right, if we think about it for just a second, because Cain's sin is our sin. One of the temptations that we often have is to look at the foolishness of someone compare ourselves and respond with, well, I would never do that. And while our rebellion may look a little different, every person in this room still rebels. Galatians 5 tells us that we are free in Christ, but how often do we run back to rules and control? And even though we are free, how often do we indulge in the things that are not good for us? Food and drink are good, but we eat and drink too much. Money is useful, but we are foolish with our spending. Recreation is good, but we spend too much time playing or not enough time resting. Sleep is good, but we sleep too much and become lazy or too little and walk around exhausted. How often do the freedoms we enjoy become licentiousness? Rather humbly serving one another, how often do we long for others to serve us? Instead of living by the Spirit, how often do we give in to conceit, arrogance, provoking others and being jealous of what others have? Instead of realizing the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, instead of living and reacting in love and joy, patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control, how often do we hate, or in Christian terms, just strongly dislike? How often do we give into depression because of our lack of contentment? I don't have enough. I'm not where I'm at in life. I don't have the person in my life that I want, and so now I'm depressed. How often do we react in anger or frustration instead of patience and understanding? How often we proactively seek out ways to show kindness and goodness to those around us, anybody around us, just not the people that are in our favor. 
How often do we doubt that God can and will do whatever he wants, and it's always for the best? How often are we careless with our words and speak and act in harshness? How often do we look at others around us and smile, but on the inside question their faith or their authenticity and never try to actually know and understand their stories? How often? If God says give cheerfully like Abel, how often do we withhold our giving or give meagerly or give begrudgingly exactly like Cain? If God says pray continually or consume my word and be in love with it, how often do we allow days, weeks, and months to pass without enjoying regular and frequent times talking and listening and meditating with our Father? You see, it's easy to look at Cain and his disobedience, his foolish rebellion, and say, that's not me. But it is. It is me, and it is you. It is open rebellion. Every time we sin, it is open rebellion. We are no different than Cain. Just like Cain and his line, we know we're wrong, and so often we just keep right on living and not repenting. Repenting, acknowledging that I have sinned, and I'm turning away from my sin, I'm turning back to the Father, and I'm going to love and cherish the things the Father loves and cherishes, not the things that I want and I want to see happen, but what the Father sees and what the Father wants Sin left unrepented of draws us further from the Father. We, we see this pattern of unrepentant sin rise in Cain and his family, pass from one generation to another until in the passage we, we end up with Lamech in verse 23. Lamech. In verse 23, he says, uh, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice, woman. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I have to say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. <laughs> this is the height of arrogance and corruption. Lamech, like Cain, does what he wants. And he is so twisted that he takes the two curses, the first one to Adam and Eve, and then the second to Cain, and he capitalizes on them like they're accomplishments. He boasts of them like there's something good that he has done. Instead of realizing that God was showing Adam and Eve and Cain mercy, he celebrates in their sin. He takes two wives instead of one, which was the order of things established by God through Adam and Eve, and introduces the sin of bigamy. And the, and the language that he uses, uh, he, when he speaks to his wives, he is domineering and in controlling. And it, and it takes us right back to the curse. When God said, Eve, man shall rule over you. It's the curse. And, and, and Lamech celebrates it like it's something good. Adah and Zillah, listen to what I have to say. Pay attention right now, because I have something important to declare. He's domineering, controlling, and boastful. 
And, and what he's boastful about is he, he murdered probably a teenager and he celebrated it. Not only did he celebrate it, but he took God's curse on Cain and treated it like it was an insurance policy, policy instead of divine mercy and judgment. If you thought Cain, what Cain did was powerful, you haven't seen nothing yet. If you thought Cain was, was mighty by striking down his brother, I am so much more mighty than he is. So much so that God will take vengeance on anyone who rises up against me 77-fold instead of the measly sevenfold that Cain had. That's how powerful I am. Cain's family has gone from bad to worse, and it does not look good for humanity. The entirety of the world is teetering on the edge of completely rejecting God and twisting every good thing. And then we switch gears and we see the line of hope with the family of Seth. While Cain's family was known for building a city and creating, Seth's family will be known for its faithfulness to God. Let's start in chapter 5. Now I want you to notice how different the family of Seth is portrayed versus Cain's. Maybe you noticed it when we were reading through how different those few little passages about Cain, how different that was to an entire chapter in chapter 5 for Seth. Moses introduces Seth's line by saying that this is the generations of Adam. Cain received no introduction. And not only does he skip right over Cain and Abel in this introduction, but he firmly roots Seth's line starting with a garden. This is a new beginning. When Adam and Eve were created, they were created in the likeness of God. But notice in verse 3 that Seth was born in the likeness of Adam. It's a, it's a key difference here. Here's what we need to see. Adam and Eve were born perfect in the very likeness of God. Seth, however, was born in the likeness of Adam. He had the duality of being in the likeness of God, but also being corrupted by sin like Adam was. This is an important theological truth. This is where we get some of our understanding about man. It's important because it serves as a continual reminder that throughout the ages of humanity, while being made in the likeness of God, will also pass on the sin of man. From one generation to another, sin will pass. There is no escaping the duality that Moses describes here. All humanity is created in the image of God and have fallen. This is important to see because it highlights the fact that we need a redeemer. There, there is no promised line. There, there is no promised heritage and no individual that is born perfect or neutral. Every man, woman, and child is affected by the curse of death. And we see that throughout chapter 5, right? Seth lived fathered, had other sons and daughters, and then what happened to him? He died. Enosh lived, fathered, and had other sons and daughters, and then what happened to him? He died. And that is the pattern of life for generation after generation. For thousands and thousands of years, that has been the pattern of our lives. And one day, if it was ever written about you, it would say that you lived to a certain age, then maybe you had children, and then you lived a little bit longer, and then you died. 
It will be the same thing written about every one of us. Because that is part of the curse. Even when we look at the story of Enoch, who didn't face death because God welcomed him into his presence before the death took him, even Enoch experienced the curse. He experienced it through pain, sickness, toil. The curse isn't just in death, but that is the finality of it. You and I experience the curse every single moment of the day because we are fallen. Our, our bodies are dying. Our minds do not work at the speed and at the function that they should be working in. You are not as good looking as you should be. How about that for self-esteem? As you get older, you realize you are dying even quicker. This morning when I got out of bed and my knee popped, I was reminded, oh yeah, I'm dying. And what that tells us is that we need a redeemer. Romans 5 tells us that. We all need a redeemer because we were all born into death. As babies, we do not enter into this world as blank canvases. Rich babies, poor babies. Black babies, white babies. Muslim families, Christian families. Jewish families. We all carry the same curse. In the end, it will be written, and he died, and she died. Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Ephesians 2.3 says that by our very natures, that part of who we are at our core, we are children of wrath. Proverbs 22.15 says that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Genesis 8.21 says the intent of our hearts is evil from the beginning of our lives. And finally, Romans 3 says there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have become together. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. We all, from conception, carry sin like a spreading cancer, and there is only one cure, a redeemer. We have no hope outside of a redeemer, someone perfect in every way without sin. This is why we preach the gospel at New City. We need Jesus to rescue and redeem us. We need the Holy Spirit to continue conforming us to the image of Christ. It's not just the moment of repentance and belief. We don't flip a switch on the inside. Once you become a Christian, there is no switch on the inside that gets flipped. And suddenly you just stop dying and you stop sinning. That's not how it works. No, we will still struggle. And we will still fail. We still need the message of the gospel to be redeeming our hearts, our thoughts, and our actions because no one is righteous. Not Abel, not Cain, and not Seth. In their own ways, they, they pointed to the coming redeemer, but they weren't the redeemer. All right, back to our text. L let's look at a few other things that are important to see regarding the line of Seth, okay? First, when Seth had his first child, a great movement of worshiping God had begun. 
And this, this turning back to God seems to have grown throughout Seth's line through the generations until we get to Enoch. Enoch so loved God, so worshiped God in spirit and truth that our father welcomed Enoch into his presence. Enoch didn't die. That's what that passage means. There, there are only a couple of people that the scriptures say they never died. God just took them into his presence. We don't know how it happened, what it looked like, and that's really not even the point. The point was Seth's line loved God, whereas Cain's did not. And that line continues to Noah, who found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is a huge contrast between these two families. And that's what Moses wants us to see by describing Cain and by describing Seth and their family trees. He wants us to see how different they were because he's setting us up for something. Cain gets this little paragraph that lists out some of the key uh, figures in Cain's line, describes what he's known for, sinfully building a city and creating culture. Compared to Seth's line of worshiping God, living long lifespans, and key people who are significant to the Father, who the Father treasured. Seth and his generation turning to worship the Lord, Enoch so loved by God that our Father didn't allow him to face death, and ultimately to Noah, who would be the start of another new beginning. And then we reach the fall of mankind and the faithfulness of God. Remember, all of mankind were born into sin, even, even Seth. As much as we want to see Seth's line is so different from Cain's, Cain's family was also born into sin. And ultimately, his line, his family, would largely turn away from God as well, and we see that happening in chapter 6. Even the promised line of Seth would eventually turn to their own desires. These two families were growing, they were multiplying, they were building and creating, and just as humanity began to spread rapidly, so did sin. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on who were the sons of God and daughters of men, who were the Nephilim, because the text just isn't super clear on, on who, on defining these things. There are three main arguments in case you want to know. Uh, one, the sons of God were Seth's line and the daughters of men were Cain's. So lovers of God were taking wives from a family that had no regard for God and it threatened the line of Seth. Uh, the line of Seth was important, obviously, because ultimately that was the line that Jesus would come out of. When we get to the New Testament and we see the genealogies, Jesus comes from the line of Seth. Uh, the second argument of the, for this is the sons of God were actually demons who took on human flesh, they had sex with uh, human women, and they created a giant race. The third argument uh, is the sons of God were actually humans possessed by demons who had sex with human women and created a giant race. So there, there are the three primary arguments, and, and I've read really good arguments on both sides uh, on all three of these different options, and, and to be honest with you, I I could go either way. It's really unclear. All three of them make a lot of sense. I lean towards the Seth and Cain family line argument because it makes sense in the flow of the text. But either way, we know that humanity had fallen to an all-new low. And, and God looks out over his once beautiful and perfect creation and says, I am done. And, that, and that's the heartbreaking moment out of all of this 
is that God created something beautiful and perfect in every way. And, and then he tried to restore. He tried to work with humanity over and over and over again. And we get to this place where humanity is so defiled, so corrupted, so twisted, so evil in their hearts that God says, I'm done. I'm done. He looked out over his creation and it sickened him. So much so that he was ready to destroy everything. Everything. Man, animals, bugs, birds, everything. He's ready to wipe everything from the face of the earth. That's how much sin sickens our father. But Noah. Noah found favor in God's eyes. This is a, a pretty incredible moment in our history. We, we walked right up to the edge of complete destruction. You and I would not be sitting here. But Noah. Noah caught God's eye. Verse 8 says that Noah found favor with God. Verse 9 says that Noah was a righteous man. Compared to his generation, he was blameless. I mean, that must have been how bad the world had gotten. Because God says there is no righteous, there is no, no one who does good. But Noah, compared to his generation, was so evil, so twisted, that God called him righteous and a good man. Because the world had become completely corrupt and violence filled the earth from corner to corner. And if you look at our world, our world is pretty, pretty dang corrupt, right? I mean, if you look at the wars and you look at sex trafficking and you look at the racism and you look at hatred and you look at murder and murder statistics and, and you look at all the damage done, all the death, all the twisted corruption of man in our time today, and we're still here, how much worse it must have been during Noah's time. The line of Seth would be saved through Noah because one man in the entirety of the world still worshiped God. Think about that for just a second. One man in the entirety of the world still worshiped God. That is mind-boggling. But ultimately, this would continue God's promise to Adam and Eve, that a Redeemer would come and He would crush Satan and sin and death and He would restore all things. God was and is faithful to His promise. Even though the entirety of the world had turned their backs on the Father, and even good men like Seth's line had become corrupt, God was faithful to His promise. There was one man left. New City, you will probably walk away from this passage with many things tumbling around your head. But I want you to be reminded that our perfect Father is always faithful to those who love Him imperfectly. We've seen God's faithfulness to Adam and Eve, to Abel, to Cain, Seth, Enoch, Noah, but know that God has not changed from that time. He is still faithful to those who love Him. Even in our unfaithfulness, He is still faithful. His promise will not go unfulfilled. And even our sin and depravity won't stop Him. He promised a Redeemer, and there would be a Redeemer. He promised it would be the offspring of Eve, and indeed, it will be an offspring of Eve, right? Jesus. This faithfulness isn't just towards Noah. It's towards you and me as followers of Jesus. He's promised you good, and he will bring it. 
He has promised to never leave you and never forsake you, and you can count on that as being true. He's promised in Christ to redeem you, and he will. To fix your brokenness, he will. To comfort those who mourn, to wipe away every tear, and he will. In the terrible, terrible darkness of the fall and sin, even our own sin shines a light. And that's the light of a faithful God, the light of promises kept, the light of forgiveness, redemption, and restoration, the light of the promised one, Jesus. When we look at this passage all the way back in Genesis, it points us right back to our Redeemer, your Redeemer, Jesus, and the faithfulness of God. Our perfect Father is always faithful to those who love him imperfectly. You don't have to love God perfectly because you can't. You are a sinner. You are still being redeemed. You will never love God perfectly until you are completely redeemed and restored. But God is faithful to those who love him imperfectly. Let's pray. Father, you are good and gracious to us, God. I, I, Father, I'm just blown away by this passage this morning. There, there was so much more that I wanted to say. There was so much more in those chapters that you, that re, you revealed about just the depth of sin in humanity and, and the amazing faithfulness that you have. God, you just have no time. I, I pray, Father, that I pray, Father, that you would supernaturally work in our hearts, God, to remind us of your goodness. God, when we face difficulties in our day, when, when we have a bad day and we're struggling with sin or we're struggling with doubt or we're, we're struggling with fear or we're struggling with anger or whatever it is that, that we struggle with, whatever that thing is for us, God, I pray that you would bring Seth and Noah and Enoch and Jesus to our memories. God, that we would be reminded that you have an impeccable track record over thousands of years dealing with a rebellious son and daughter. And that's us. Father, I pray that you would help us see ourselves in that way, that we are in desperate need for you. Every morning and every day, we need you. Father, it's not we get saved and then we're good and we've got this. No, no, that's not it at all. We still need you. Father, and so I pray that we would remember that. You know it. You, you see our thoughts and you see our actions and you know that we need you. God, I pray that you would help us see that we need you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from New City Church Milledgeville, located in Milledgeville, Georgia. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about New City Church Milledgeville, please visit us online at www.newcitymilledgeville.org.